Before we start, we want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. We are excited to chat with Chloe Benjamin, New York Times bestselling author of The Anatomy of Dreams and The Immortalists. Originally from San Francisco, California, Chloe is a graduate of Vassar College and received her MFA in fiction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her second novel, The Immortalists, was named a Best Book of 2018 by NPR, The Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, and others, including where I actually first heard of the book, which was Jimmy Fallon's Book Club. (laughs) So welcome to Pop Fiction Women. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Good. Yay. So before we dive into The Immortalists, I want to talk about the pandemic, specifically expectation and inspiration topics that you've been talking and posting with such honesty and complexity on social media. In fact, just yesterday you wrote uh, these are all your words. I've I've moved them around just because I'm not reading the whole thing. But it's the, these are your your words. I'll I'll recite back. Like many writers, I've spent much of 2020 feeling like I should be able to get much more done creatively than I have. It's easy to feel guilty when the writing isn't coming. Right now, I also feel uncomfortable that it is. I never expected to get an idea for novel number four when I was four years into work on novel number three. But the one thing I've learned is that writing is something like 80% labor, 20% inspiration. And when the inspiration comes, you have to inhabit it as fully and with as much presence as possible. You have to listen. The fact that I can create another world, if only on the page, is a privilege. But it's also a balm, a guide, a source of healing. I'm trying to be open to all of it. Now, this applies to writers, of course, but non-writers, too. I mean, there's so many people struggling with the shoulds of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I should be I should be homeschooling. I should be starting a podcast, learning to cook, organizing the garage, pursuing my passion, finding the one. I mean, it's incredible 
the way all of these shoulds came upon us so all at once because we've never had this period of time in life. And where did all these expectations come from? I mean, generations haven't even experienced something like this pandemic. So it's amazing how immediate these expectations just sort of flood us. But you're using words like open and presence, listen and guide. And specifically, I wanted to talk about how do you let go of expectations? And if you do let go of them, what are you left with? Where do you start? Wow, that's great questions and so beautifully put. Oh, man. I mean, I guess I would first just agree with you that what we are going through individually, regionally, nationally, globally is is unprecedented in our lifetime, certainly. And I mean, going back to most of our grandparents' lifetimes. And I think it's completely overwhelming. And in many ways, it's impossible to make sense of in the moment. I've had a lot of conversations with friends who are writers who are saying, you know, does my project matter anymore if it's not about Mm. the pandemic? Or do I have to write about the pandemic right now? And, And a conversation I just had with a friend the other day, I was like, there is no way unless it is coming to you naturally, there is no way to force sense making in the moment, especially Mm -hmm. about something this enormous. So I guess I've been trying to lead with compassion and, and giving myself and other people some grace. And I don't always achieve that. And (laughs) this journey that I've been on of moving toward acceptance and an ability to to flow and to sort of not resist, not grip so tightly. I mean, this is very much what The Immortalists is about, but it's also very much what I personally have been going through since the publication. So I say all this not as somebody who has mastered those things, but who is Mm -hmm. acutely aware of how difficult it is not to lean toward control, especially during moments of crisis. But I think what we're seeing is that there's so much tragedy and grief in this moment, but there's also the ability for self-reflection to look at our patterns as individuals and as a country, as a, as a world, and to think about like what's working and what's not working. And so there's absolutely been this productivity push, you know, like make sourdough, make banana bread. (laughs) Obviously a lot of privilege associated with that as well. But I've also, what's really been resonating with me is like the opposite push that I've seen coming out sort of in response to that saying, yes, and like take Mm. this time to make bread if that soothes and nourishes, which it does for me. But also Mm. we are more than our productivity. And Mm. this is an opportunity to get in touch with the present moment. Yeah. Mm. (sighs) You know, when you say it, it sounds so freeing and it makes sense. Like, why would you try to process this time as it's still happening? You you can't. Nothing about your own experience, my own experience, anyone's experience tells you that you can process something like while you're in the middle of it. And yet I it's so hard to let go of that impulse Mm -hmm. because I think things do feel out of control. But gosh, it's amazing that it sounds so freeing and liberating to to think about doing that. And it's incredibly hard and it's a daily practice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're going to weave a lot of what we were just discussing throughout the interview, but we want to discuss the immortalist as well. 
And the one word for me that kept coming to mind when I was reading this novel is ambitious. Now, we assume everyone's read this book, but just the one-liner, if you haven't, for some strange reason, you've been living under a rock for a couple of years. <laughs> uh, the book is kind of about four siblings who learn the dates of their deaths from a fortune teller. And then the novel follows each of them as they wrestle with or try to forget or outgrow this information. It opens in New York City in 1969 and spans five decades, it takes place in very different settings. Uh, narrated by four siblings in separate sections, and it tackles big, big questions about fate versus free will, the power of belief, the importance of family, magic, uh, religious faith, the desire to know the unknowable, just all weighty concepts. So how did you know how to handle everything this novel demanded of you? I mean, did you take it bit by bit and let it grow? Or did the big idea come to you first and then you drilled down? Mm, what a great question. And thank you for articulating those elements so beautifully. I think I am drawn to high concepts with intimate character work together. Yes, I, I love, yes. I mean, I'm fascinated by people. I'm intensely curious. I'm also like a bit of a, I don't know if I'm nosy, but I'm, you know, all writers are kind of spies, you know, we're a bit vulturish, yeah. kind of like picking up, like writing down a piece of dialogue from a, when you're on the bus on a receipt or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I've been always fascinated by human psychology, but also drawn to these, sort of high concept premises that allow you to ask big questions about what the hell we're doing here and why we're here and what happens next. And I, I think that's my attraction to these kinds of concepts it is in part because I really don't write short stories. I'm very much a long form mm. writer. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I take anywhere from, I mean, I've, I've published two books and then as I, as you guys mentioned earlier from my post, I've been working on a third for yeah. now four years. So I would say it's about five years per book from all the way through from having the idea to publishing the book. And I really need something that's going to sustain my interest for that amount of time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, that's a big part of it. Also, I grew up reading these incredible young adult books that do both of the things I'm talking about in terms of bridging a fascinating concept with really beautiful character work and writing. I'm thinking about A Wrinkle in Time as a very iconic mm. book in that lineage or The Giver by Lois Lowry. I talk mm. a lot about the His Dark Material series by Philip Pullman and how much those books influenced me both as a young person and now, if you haven't read them, they're, you know, they're the kind of young adult book that can be read by a 13 year old or read by a 50 year old and and both both people can get an enormous amount out of them and they're about consciousness and parallel universes and, and they're just utterly utterly magical to me so yeah. um to get to your question about sort of how the process unfolded i had that initial idea of Four siblings go to a fortune teller who gives them what she claims are their dates of death. And then the novel follows each of them over the course of their lives. So the, the initial seed of the idea was that concept and that structure. But I think what unfolded more slowly was just sort of the stew of themes that 
that hooks <laughs> down as you work on a book over years and you realize subconsciously what what brought you to it in the first place or what you're trying to say. There's a passage late in the book in Varya's section where she talks about her OCD and kind of ties this to her desire for stories and control mm -hmm. about her life. And when I wrote that section, I realized I had found the heart of the book, but it took mm -hmm. a while to get mm -hmm. to that knowledge. And I did go chronologically. So I started with the prologue and did all of the research for this 1960s Lower East Side New York setting. And then I moved sequentially throughout the book. So I wrote Simon's mm -hmm. section first, Clara's second, etc. I did all, I did the research sequentially. I just, I could not have done everything up front. I would have been way too overwhelmed. Right, uh, right. But I right. did, especially because Simon and Clara are so intertwined. I remember at one point during the writing of Simon's section, realizing that I had to stop and start doing some of the research for Clara's section because I had to know about her act and I had to know about her sort of mm. relationship to magic, which you start to see through the lens of Simon's view, view of her. Right. So I would say it was kind of both. There's the initial spark and then there's the slow layering that happens as you work on something over time. Right. You wrote that on Instagram yesterday, same thing. You said you write chronologically. And I was wondering if that meant when they're young versus when they're older, but you're talking about the book, like the beginning. Yeah, I really should say sequentially. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's what I mean. I mean, in the book, it, right. it is also chronological. Yes, yes, but, it is. But I tend to write in the order in which, you know, scenes appear in the book. Although I always have a huge number of notes that I take throughout the time in which I'm working on a novel. And sometimes that includes whole scenes. So the scene between... Ah, yeah. Daniel and Bruna, the fortune teller in which he confronts her at the end of his section. I wrote that mm -hmm. scene probably when I was writing Simon's section uh -huh. and ditto uh -huh. with the, the sort of confrontation between Luke and Varya. And I often okay. find that when a scene does come to me that early, it's mm -hmm. usually really strong and it usually stays like yeah. I, I wind up changing very little what, because that is the right. inspiration. like that. Those are the moments of inspiration. Right. Not always true. Sometimes you think something was a moment of inspiration and then you're like, yeah, that, that, no. <laughs> that uh, doesn't pan out. <laughs> yeah. In work. But yeah. for the most part, I, I write sequentially and then I sort of use as lighthouses these bits and pieces that I have for later in the book. I can write toward them. Sure. Sure. So what I really love and what's so hard to do in a book is ambiguity. And because you have four characters and four points of view, four siblings, it's such a brilliant and beautiful way to give ambiguity because each one either fails to or or does meet their day of death the way it was described in different ways, in very different ways. And I, you know, I, I don't like everything all wrapped up at the end of a book, but ambiguity can often feel unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. So you managed to to get both of them here, which I just give you a lot of credit for. Because the prophecy affects each of the characters differently. And you can't help but as you're reading it, asking yourself, you know, was, the, was Bruna as powerful as she seemed? Mm -hmm. What gave her power? Was it her training? Was it her words? Was it their reactions? Mm -hmm. And how... 
and how much of fate is random and how much of free will is shaped by expectation. Mm. Was it important to you to remain ambiguous or give us multiple answers, really? It's really not so ambiguous as it is singular, just a lack of a singular mm. definitive answer. And was that important to you? And and maybe a little more about why you wanted to wrestle with those things. Yes, it absolutely was. I really, I, I mean, I'm similar to you in that I want an ending that feels satisfying, but if it's mm. too clean, yeah. then it's almost unsatisfying because it's <laughs> obviously imposed and it doesn't take into account the complexity that exists in the world. Yeah, I've had a, a number of people ask me, you know, what do you think about the woman and was mm-hmm. she, you know, did she truly have this ability or was it, you know, all about the way that the siblings reacted to this information? And I don't know myself. And if I did know, I think I would have written the book in a way that was much more didactic. And, right. mm-hmm. you know, I think for me, the as a fiction writer, I think this is true for so many fiction writers, the, the fascination is in the nuance. You know, the gray yes. area is what's so interesting. The, the contradictions are what is so interesting. And the mystery is what's so interesting. I I talk briefly in the book about the placebo effect. And, you know, most of us are familiar with that phrase. But when you really think about it, it's absolutely insane that (laughs) simply being told you're taking a pill that can raise your heart rate or blood pressure or have these other side effects can actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's extraordinary. And that is absolute proof of the power of the mind. Yes. So I, I definitely wanted to, I wanted there to be four different case studies in terms mm. of how these people responded to this information. I didn't want it to feel like Groundhog Day, like here we go again with the same kind of, you mm-hmm. know, person having the same sort of orientation toward the prophecy. And I really wanted to leave readers with the opportunity to debate, you know, and, and come to their own conclusion about why things happened as they did. But I think the mm. shortest version for me, it's always a both and. Yeah. Like I mm-hmm. think probably that I, probably Bruna has some gift of intuition that is mm. that is almost otherworldly, and some people do have. You know, I mean, there mm-hmm. are. I've had people reach out to me with extraordinary stories of being told something by a fortune teller that, you know, how right. how could how could this person possibly have known this about their future? Right. But I also think that absolutely each sibling was shaped by their expectations and their response to those expectations. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we love we love holding space for both. Yes. yes. That's a big thing for us yeah. here. So our tagline is pop fiction women were complicated, which <laughs> to us <laughs> yes, which that. to us just means real three-dimensional human beings with contradictions and conflict. Mm -hmm. So we discuss women in fiction that have flaws or who find themselves in messy situations and don't always make good choices, but who we can relate to nonetheless. So we wanted to focus on the two women in The Immortalists. Clara, with her wild red hair and Doc Martens, is bold and daring and independent, a female magician in a male-dominated environment, But she's also a protective big sister, a wife, and a mother. So she is, like the complicated characters we love, more than just one thing. Yeah. And then there's Varya, in some ways the opposite of Clara. She's the eldest child. She's the scientist. She's the one with the tightest grip on life, whereas Clara... 
enjoyed the the mirage between a reality and an illusion. So Varya is the complete opposite there. And you have said that Varya's section was no doubt the hardest to write and had haunted me for years. So we'd love to hear about your inspiration for writing either of these women and more about the challenges that presented themselves as you were. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I think, you know, Clara was in a sense, a a, a delight to write. I mean, she certainly the end of her section was not a delight to write. And I actually found my I'm assuming this is a spoiler, a a spoiler containing conversation at this point, maybe you guys will give a disclaimer or something at the beginning. When I when I got close to each sibling's death, I found myself jumping forward to write the next section a couple of times. And that's something very unusual. You know, as I mentioned, my process was like, really, like, I could not move on to the next unless I had written what was before it in most cases. Mm. But Clara was just she was a character that came to me really early. I think both her and Simon were the clearest to me from the start. And that's in part why I started with them. Um, I love the idea of a female magician. I love the idea of her, you know, like you say, with her red hair and her Doc Martens and her determination to carve a space for herself as a woman in this field. And I did all kinds of fascinating research about the way that women have had to modify magical acts to suit themselves, their bodies, their ways of working. I mean, one very obvious example, I mean, certainly today a woman can wear a suit and it's, you know, not so controversial as it would have been years ago, but even so men tend to wear baggier clothing They tend Mm -hmm. to have better, you know, they can hide a ball up a loose, you know, coat sleeve Mm -hmm. or something. Sure. Mm -hmm. And when you see female magicians, they're generally dressed in a way that doesn't allow for that. So just just small things like that really interested me. And I think it was also freeing to write Clara because, as you say, she is open to an embracing of the mystery in the world. And I, I sometimes joke that this book could only have been written by Avaria. And so I certainly, you know, I think Varya's section was hard to write just because it's a darker section. I mean, I knew, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people prefer the first half of the book and I can understand why it's a, you know, despite the tragedy, it's still, mm-hmm. I don't want to say lighter, but there's a vibrancy to it. And, yes, I, and as the book goes yes. on, it kind of becomes more, contemplative and a bit darker and mm-hmm. and and Varya is has really been living unhappily and that's that's not an that's an un- unpleasant and kind of difficult thing to inhabit um and I also just had a great deal of difficulty in figuring out her section narratively I've spoken a mm-hmm. bit about how I initially had her working with a very unusual jellyfish called Turritopsis dorni. The colloquial name is the immortal jellyfish. And Uh. when it's on the brink of death, this jellyfish can revert back to the polyp stage, the first life stage. And I read about this in an article in the New York Times, like, probably 10 years ago, and I was so taken by it. And Mm. I don't know if I remembered it once I was working on the book or if I read it during the time that I was working on the book. But this idea of the immortal jellyfish kind of became a mascot for me and like a figurehead. And 
And yet I really could not figure out how to write her section with any kind of arc because scientists don't know how this jellyfish does what it does. So mm. neither could Varya. And, and mm. there wasn't much there there in terms, I mean, what's she going to mm. do? Like observe it in a Petri dish? <laughs> like it's, I mean, what it does is amazing, but it's not really, it, it's more sort of like, intellectually amazing yes, yes. Amazing, or like cinematically so and I, I one day stumbled across this primate study that was being done in the city where I live at UW Madison and it was a study in caloric restriction and when I saw that it just immediately became clear to me that what Varya needed was not this kind of celestial otherworldly creature that could not talk back, could not look mm -hmm. at her, could not make her face herself. But right. the primate, who's, you know, such a human reflection and is weighty and, and which she touches. And so when I had that kind of breakthrough, the section came out, came very quickly, but it was a long, mm -hmm. difficult road to that point. Oh, wow. Wow. I want to stay with Clara because I want to talk about magic and faith, which are two unlikely bedfellows. <laughs> <laughs> Clara likens magic to faith when she thinks of her father, who was a very religious man. And she says, sometimes I thought he was my opposite, his rules versus my rule breaking, his reality versus my fantasies. But what I've realized, what I think he already knew is that we believed in the same thing. You could call it a trap door, a hidden compartment, or you could call it God, a placeholder for what we don't know, a space where the impossible becomes possible. When he said the Kaddish or lit the candles on Shabbat, he was doing magic tricks. And then she goes on to say, we know something about reality, my father and I, and I bet you know it too. Is it that reality is too much? too painful, too limited, too restrictive of joy or opportunity? No, she says. I think it's that reality is not enough. Oh my God, I love that. So, oh it's just so good. So do you think we're all searching for something more, some meaning, purpose, or faith? Or as you say, like a placeholder for not knowing, for not only what we don't know, but what is unknowable? I, I would hesitate to, to say all because I can't, you know, I wouldn't yeah. want to presume for everyone, but I do think that human being is like the verb, the act of being human is, yeah. is impossible to wrap your mind around. And there's a lot of ways that we cope with, or we can cope with the inherent existential questions and unknowns that surround life. And I think those can range from, you know, a, a more scientific approach, really trying to unlock some of the things that we don't understand about life or death. I think it can take the form of religious faith, which holds this space for mystery and kind of honors it and accepts that it is not something to be figured out. Mm hmm. I think it can happen through storytelling. What, you know, the, the ironic thing about writing a book that sort of preaches ultimately the beauty and 
freedom and uncertainty is that writing a book is a very controlling act. I mean, all of us mm. authors are sort of, you know, dictators of, of these literally in, in yeah. both, both um, meanings of the word. Yeah. We have utter control over this over this universe that we're creating. And and then I think some people are able to find alternate ways of embracing presence and the unknown. I think mindfulness and meditation and Mm -hmm. all of the richness that comes from that tradition and from the Buddhist tradition is an alternative. Mm -hmm. But I do think that none of us have all the answers and many of us us need coping mechanisms to deal with that. I, I wish, though, people could see it this way, the, the way that Clara kind of describes it, because so many people think, oh, I've found the answer, and mm. the answer is my way, my, the answer is my God, or mm. it's my practices, or it's my habits, instead of just kind of zooming out and seeing we're all looking for some way to reconcile, like you said, this, this, this act of being human, and it's not easy. And we all we all think we find whatever works for us, our coping mechanism. But the disconnect is when we think our coping mechanism is the right one. Yes, right? or the only right. one. Or, yes, right. yes. Right. So you actually mentioned you leading into my next question, which is Gertie tells Varya, as you said, about the beauty and freedom in uncertainty, Mm -hmm. questioning why her children believed the fortune teller in the first place. And as a person who likes to be in control all the time and (laughs) likes to plan and know things, this really, really struck me. We talk a lot on this podcast and personally, Corinne and I, about learning to surrender, Mm. to being open to letting things unfold, or as Rebecca Searle, the author, came on here and said, to follow the energy. Mm. Uh, So it sometimes personally feels more aspirational than practical, but I am really trying. (laughs) And Chloe, you kind of just like blew up my my mind a little because Kate and I are both trained as lawyers, but mm. we both write as well. And I kind of thought I had moved from one controlling thing to a non-controlling thing. <laughs> and then I'm like, no, that's exactly what it is. I guess the good thing for me, the thing that has worked in my life, moving from being a lawyer to, to writing is that I have stopped trying to control things outside of me and instead Mm. I control what's on the page. Mm. But clearly my need is still there. But I think this is precisely the both and because it is also Mm -hmm. clear to me Mm -hmm. that writing is the one place where I fully trust myself most of the time, Mm. you know, where I am able to move from a place of faith and intuition and, and freedom, you know, not always. I, I don't always feel that way when I'm writing. I often feel paralyzed or anxious, but you know, in the in the best moments, I yeah. feel I feel that freedom and and that willingness to discover. I don't outline. I even mm. though I tend to know where a book is going. I mean, Varya's section is a perfect example. I think if I had if I had held my grip to that jellyfish mm-hmm. section, yeah. the book would not would not be what it is. And I don't. I don't think it would work. I don't think it would work. I don't think it would. Right. It, it would be totally different if that fourth section isn't what it, the way that it is. So I think, yes, there is absolutely something controlling about writing, but there can, it can also be true that it allows for something, something opposite. Yes. Yes. Mm. And you're, and, and 
again, you just blew my mind because it is a place where I feel like I can trust myself more. As a lawyer, I was a corporate lawyer. I, I worked for clients I didn't particularly want to emulate in my life. So I had a hard time trusting myself in that work. Mm. Rightfully so. For me, it was. But now writing is a place where I can trust myself more and and allow the space for that intuition. There was really no space for that intuition in my legal work. But again, you've led me beautifully to our next question, which is involves the Corona Correspondence series for the mm-hmm. Sewanee Review. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to, I'm going to read what you wrote a little bit, but I just, did you read Gillian Flynn's? Oh my gosh, I still have to. I heard two writers talking about it. Um, There's an event I watched with Stephanie Dandler and Lisa Tadeo and they were talking about it. And so I know I need, I know I need to read that one. Okay. It's not, I don't want to hype it up too much, but because it's not, well, it's not what I, it's funny. I actually listened to that same thing between Lisa Tadeo and Stephanie Dandler and I read it after that and it was not what I expected but I will say this Gillian Flynn does not she never ceases to shock and surprise and delight yeah and that I think is what's really delightful about her her writing but but for yours you wrote in the gap lives everything that is agonizing about life uncertainty and chance misfortune and bad luck grief and loss But the gap also contains everything that is wondrous, sacred mystery, unforeseen happiness, delightful surprise, freedom too. For if we knew everything that was was to happen in our lives, the joy as well as the sorrow, who would want to act it out? Mm -hmm. That line. Oh, my gosh. So good. Yeah. So, I mean, we're we're circling around so many of the same themes, but I do think we're getting at them in somehow answering them all in different ways but and asking them in different ways but we cling so desperately to our expectations when meeting them is inevitably a letdown or Mm. at best a non-event like a checked box Mm. right and we're so afraid of uncertainty even though as Kate and I recently were recapping the HBO series Foodie Love which we highly recommend Mm. to anyone who loves the immortalists and to you it's a fan foodie Yes, it's from a, a brilliant Spanish creator. She directed the series as well. A- anyway, in one of her episodes, she has a, a Anthony Bourdain quote, and she says, "Sometimes the greatest meals on vacations are the ones you find when p- Plan A falls through." Mm. I love so, that. it's the same thing as what you're saying. This idea that sometimes when we let go of our expectations, not only is it "quote unquote" okay, it can be wonderful and amazing and we have a hard time grappling with that but you wrote about it so beautifully in that uh, corona correspondence how do you work on that what is your journey to doing that I know you've already said it's kind of a daily process but oh it's been a long journey I mean I And to be honest, I still haven't, I I mean, I haven't spoken much about sort of the transformation that I've gone through since writing the book. And I'm, I'm still sort of figuring out how to talk about that and when to talk about that. But I, I can say that people often asked me, 
you know, did writing the book make, you know, enable you to embody or embrace this concluding idea that freedom is uncertainty? And mm. it, and the answer is no. Mm. I could write that book without, with knowing that cognitively, sure. but not feeling it. And, and, yeah. and I think for me, much of what's happened to me in the past couple of years has been shortly after the book came out, a drastic worsening of my migraines, which I've had since I was 13 or so, but which mm -hmm. became just almost daily. And, and that was the point when I realized that the old ways were not working. You know, the ways, the, the things that I had done that had granted found me success were, were killing me. And, yeah. and if it hadn't gotten that bad, I don't think I would have changed. Mm -hmm. And the process of change has been slow and, and very multi-layered. I mean, I, I speak in the Corona correspondences piece for the first time openly about having OCD myself and going through the process of exposure therapy, which is the recommended treatment for OCD. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a behavioral therapy in which you, you know, you're exposed in various ways, to, depending on what the, your, how your OCD manifests to the right. thing that you fear and your tolerance for that discomfort and for that uncertainty rises as a result. So it's not about eradicating mm -hmm. the the fear sure. thing from your life. It's about learning to live with it. And right. that practice I have been able to apply to my life in other ways. And yeah. so that that has been a huge part of my kind of healing and growth in the past few years. And also moving from the brain into the body. You know, I say mm -hmm. I I just mentioned that I could write the book with you know knowing that these takeaways were true or wise and, sure, and not sure. being able to, to enact them in my own life. And doing that for me has been very much a process of moving from true disembodiment to a, a connection between my mind and body and leaning into the sensory experience of life as opposed to an experience that is purely observational and kind of I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to watch, I'm going to observe and I'm going to write it down. I'm going to use it for my work, you know? Right. So that's a lot of babbling. As you can see, I, no, I, no. you know, I think this, this will be writing for me down the road when I have more distance, but it really yeah. has been like an utterly, I, I have, I have changed in ways that I did not ever think I could change. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm so grateful. I mean, maybe the book was the start of that process, you know, sure, maybe, yeah. maybe this wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't written it, but, but that's just a little bit of kind of what's gone on behind the scenes for me. Wow. That yeah. I, I see you've mentioned the book, the body keeps score, which I read last year and has profoundly, mm -hmm. I had already been on kind of a journey to what I think is inhabit my body more and not just be what did I call say Kate like a walking head I feel like mm -hmm. I was just like yes. walking around as like a brain and and so disconnected from my body and right. I had already been doing some energy work and some things to sort of integrate what I thought of was my brain and my body and that book really punctuated a lot of what I had I had already been learning mm. and I, I highly recommend it to everyone as well anyone who who's interested in that I completely agree. I feel like I found it in the same 
time when I had Mm. already come far enough to recognize what was so resonant in the book or to feel like so much of what I sensed was confirmed or, you know, and it, it really is an incredible book that is essentially about the way that trauma is both expressed through the mind and body, but also can be healed through the mind and body. And yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It's, it's Thank really you. transformative. Yeah. And that was the piece I think I was missing in a lot of my life when people would say, like, you have to kind of relive the trauma or, or, or confront it. And I was like, it's the past. Why? I don't need to do that. But I don't think I understood the way doing that heals. Mm. I, I don't think I, I, I quite got that. But thank you for those amazing answers. We're going to talk a little bit about we're going to shift gears a little bit to to writing. Mm. We wanted to talk about your stages of development as a writer. Before you received, oh, well, actually, I say that this is a departure, but for me, it's very much connected because you were an English major at Vassar and your advisor was Kiese Lehman, who is an author I am in total awe of. Despite our obvious differences, Kiese is a black man from the South and I am a mostly white woman from the North, I truly saw myself in the pages of heavy in a way that I hadn't seen in a work of art before. So I'd love to know a little bit about what you learned from him or that time in your in that stage of your development as a writer. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's such a cool question because nobody has specifically asked me about working with him before. But that was such a critical time for me. I mean, obviously, like, of course, college for many of us is a is a critical time in terms of the development of our minds and our voices. But I had been writing since I was pretty young, you know, basically as early as I could write and then and then pretty seriously in high school. And I actually came to college with the beginning of an absolutely terrible novel that I'm humiliated to say I immediately showed Casey. <laughs> and I just hope that enough time has gone by that he's forgotten everything about it. <laughs> but he I'm sure it was not. <laughs> oh no, believe me, I'm not okay. being modest. Okay, um, okay, okay. You know, his his style of teaching, his voice, his experience, it, it was really radical to just mm. learn from him in every way. He one one assignment that I remember very well was to write from the perspective of someone of a different race, socioeconomic class, gender, and sexuality. Mm. And what I think is interesting about this is that I don't think it would be given out as an assignment today, probably even by Kiese, because I think the conversation that the literary world is having right now, understandably so, and for important yeah. reasons, is about when and how to write from experience that is not your own and right. when and how to kind of pass the mic to yes. people who do have yeah. certain More authentic stories. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yes, experiences. Yeah. But I think as an exercise for young writers, there's something really powerful about it because it's, you know, what he asked us to do was to radically imagine. And I think you need to keep that muscle Mm. active. And what I mean by radical is that it would be a failure of the assignment to do it lazily, to say, okay, I'm going to pick the opposite of my gender and my sexuality and my and and everything else. And and I'm just gonna, you know, but not really do the work to imbue this person with any of the facets that would have developed because of those sure. pieces of identity. Sure. So 
to, to do the assignment mindfully was actually, well, obviously incredibly difficult, but it's, yeah. but it's something that I will always remember. And I still have that piece of writing and I, you know, I wouldn't publish it, but I am so grateful for that experience. Yes. And th- that was just one of the ways in which Kiese pushed us and sort of invited us into this very, what, you know, when I think of his writing, I think of a muscularness. I think there is like mm-hmm. a dynamism, mm-hmm. like an acrobatic mm-hmm. sense to his work and, and just an utter, you know, you see the malleability of language in his hands. He's, he's, he's playing with language and words constantly, but he's also shaping these, these massive ideas. Yeah. So I coming, I mean, I was a completely different writer by the time I left college than when I came into it and thank God. And it was largely because of exposure to different kinds of voices and thinkers. And I, one other thing I can say about Kiese is that he is very, very focused on revision. He talks yes. to his students and I think he talks in his writing a lot about yeah. revising and revising as literally being an act of reseeing, you know, not mm-hmm. just revisiting, but reseeing the work. And that's been something that I've taken with me that, you know, revision is really where the work takes place. Like, you don't write something and, you know, call it fantastic and send it off to the Paris (laughs) Review. Like, you need to go re-see that thing again and again. Yeah. He even says it for reading. He's, you know, how rereading is re-seeing something. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I know it's been my experience. I don't, I am, until I read Heavy, I don't think I had ever reread anything and then after that I started to and you know uh, being in different points of your you're you're unequivocally in a different point of your life even if you read the book from beginning to end and then started over you would still be in a different place and but more likely it's usually a year has passed or more and the things that you see even just on the second viewing even if everything in your life felt the same yeah he really really opened my eyes to that yeah, that is so true. Like even just the act of reading a book makes you a slightly different person than you were yeah. before you read it. Sure. Yes. Exactly. So what is your biggest piece of advice to aspiring writers on the thorny subject of getting published? Well, first I would say make sure you're not worrying about that part until it's time. And I'm, mm. and I say that as somebody who was worrying about that part long before it was time. <laughs> I mean, I was submitting my work as a teenager to literary magazines. Like that work did not need to go out. And <laughs> oh my God. so, you know, I really try to encourage writers, especially people who are new writers, whether that's, it's something that they discover in college or whether it's something that you discover at 50 to experiment and play and, you know, mm. read a lot, read more than you write you know, try experiment with writing in the voice of a writer that you love. You'll never publish this thing. You know, you're not plagiarizing, but, but you're, you're stretching that muscle and you're, you're developing that kind of muscular imagination. I think we live in such an outcome oriented world that I myself Mm -hmm. have been incredibly affected by. And I think that's, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about ambition and, you know, there's, there's things that are wonderful about it. And then there's things that can be really destructive about it, which is Mm. that you kind of miss the forest for the trees if you're just Mm. aiming, 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 and you don't let yourself learn as much as you can from each moment on the way. So I really, I try to encourage young writers to do that. And, and then, I mean, there's, 
a lot of great education out there in a variety of ways for a variety of price points and including information that is no cost. I highly recommend the magazine Poets and Writers. They have great Mm -hmm. ongoing education about publishing industry and interviews with agents and editors and publicists and all kinds of things. And much of their articles are is free on are free online or you can subscribe. They also have these really amazing $5 PDF booklets on like finding an agent. And I think mm. there's one on the actual, you know, publishing process. And I think there's one on MFAs. They have Poets and Writers has a lot of great a lot of great info about MFAs. So I, I think just seeking out ways to educate yourself. Also finding literary community, you know, now it's virtual. Hopefully mm-hmm. it will return to being non-virtual before too long, but go to readings, support your peers, create a writing group with a couple of friends from your writing class after the class ends or sign up for a writing course if you can online or in your city. Catapult is a great organization that yes. offers online writing classes. And then there's places like Grub Street and I think Sackett, mm. yep. Sackett Street Writers Workshop. And here yep. in Madison, there's the Madison Writers Studio. I think having connection, interpersonal connection is really important for writers because we work alone for the most part. I mean, mm-hmm. even we're, we're not though people who are novelists or short story writers we're not even like tv writers where you know there's a writer's room they work in collaboration they work for you know for the most part in in real isolation and that can be crazy making so yeah yeah, i guess i would say like let yourself experiment and and play and explore find sources of education about the industry and try to find a community yes yes all very valuable. I wanted to come back to something that you said earlier about how you love this, you're drawn to this high concept with with really deep character work and that we see clearly, I think, in The Immortalists. But I have also seen, I mean, I even before you said that I had this question prepared, I see it in your social media presence. It's oh. this such an interesting combination of popular material, Taylor Swift and Harry Potter and takes these kind of very popular things with a depth of thought and feeling, which honestly Mm. is the perfect bullseye for this podcast. It's Mm -hmm. it's really what we do. I mean, we say we engage in the simple but subversive act of taking women seriously. Mm. That means the career woman, the lost and confused woman, the woman in love. Nothing is trivial because we can give it our analytical eye. Mm. So I wanted to know how do you keep up that light silly part of yourself that oh by the way your tiktok dances love <laughs> yes. yeah. and and still balance that in a literary world that often takes itself very seriously how do yeah. you balance that and also which part comes more easily to you Ooh, that's a great question i mean i think i like i am somebody who likes high low you know like I love literary fiction and I watch the real housewives and I Mm -hmm. think you know we are often told that we have to pick and yes and so I think I try to aim for authenticity and I mean I certainly have changed my kind of like comfort level with posting certain things as my following has grown but you know for years I was on Instagram just at you know with like 300 followers who were friends and family Mm -hmm. and and I 
I think I was posting the same kinds of stuff. I, yeah. I think it's again, the both and yes. And I, I appreciate on social media when people are able to, I never want to seem as though I'm ignoring what's happening in the world. And I do mm -hmm. feel to, like I have a responsibility with whatever audience I have to make sure that I'm talking and learning about what's going on in our world, especially now and kind of doing whatever I can to encourage other people to click on this article or to, you know, start their own journey in that sense. But I also am drawn to the personal and like the, you know, weird, funny moments that <laughs> make up life. And yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's also probably a little bit of the performer in me. I, mm. I used to be, when I was a kid, I, I did acting and, and I was a dancer. And so I'm sure there's, you know, some, I mean, I think you're, you're not really like into social media unless you have like a tiny narcissist in you, which is mm. probably <laughs> awful and unflattering, but I'm trying to be honest. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's all those things. And, but at the end of the day, I do try to write there in a way that feels authentic and yes. that contains the kind of like complexity and combination and contradictions that I experience in life. To us, that's what comes through as authentic yes. because we are, we aren't one thing. And I think sometimes people do feel forced to choose. And that's the unfortunate part, mm -hmm. because I think you lose part of yourself. And that can be something silly, like the Real Housewives. By the way, I don't know which ones you're watching, but they are all on fire for this pandemic. You know what? It's so sad because I grew up watching them because, you know, they've been on for what, like 15 yes. years, like yes. some of them yes. probably more. But I've had to cut down a lot on my TV viewing, like since the migraines got really bad. Sure. Now, sure. thank God, I'm in a much better place. But I, I think I got used to like, not like I can't binge shows. Yeah. Yes. Uh. They're, those episodes or those seasons are like 23 episodes. I know. You know, you have to it's like crazy. really be in it. So I've been watching more of these eight episode series that like yes. I know I can get through in the, yes. like, a month. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I think acknowledging the the contradiction is important. And just, you know, I was thinking about Harry Potter, which you mentioned, and mm -hmm. I had, I've posted about how Harry Potter was just a like an utterly magical comforting series mm -hmm. from my childhood before and then of course in the recent mm -hmm. past jk rowling has made these incredibly upsetting mm -hmm. transphobic comments and mm -hmm. so when i i recently put up a like a question q a and somebody asked how my feelings have changed or if they've changed about jk rowling and i and i shared how I, how conflicted i feel and mm -hmm. i think that's important important too you know yes yeah so yeah more more complication because like people know i think people can sense when something's being oversimplified or yes, like yeah. at, or a whole piece of the conversation is being cut out and and that doesn't feel resonant or honest right um so even if all you have to say in this moment is like i don't know yet and i'm really yeah. confused yeah that's valuable too yeah tracy on stacks podcast oh yeah she has she talks about problematic books all the time and mm. so she's like this is problematic but i like it and here's where i am and i'm not going to say i don't love it anymore or erase it from my memory or erase it from my 
you know, the place it holds in my heart, but I'm just going to say it's problematic. Mm -hmm. And like, let's talk about what's problematic about it. And I think that kind of discourse is so much more rewarding for not only the person who doesn't have to deny part of themselves, but also for the people at large who are listening and feeling like they can embrace those things as well. That's so true. And and that's another great podcast. And I agree that yes. Tracy does a great job yeah. in sort of holding both of those things mm-hmm. at once. And another one that I would recommend specifically on the subject of Harry Potter is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. They have a really interesting concept in which they treat the Harry Potter books like a sacred text and they sort of read into them a different theme and, and do different sort of spiritual practices with them every week. But since this, you know, since these comments of J.K. Rowling's have come out, they've addressed it in ways that have really been thought provoking for me. They had a a trans activist named Jackson Bird on the show and they talked about the subject with him. And it was a really great conversation to listen to. And they also talk about how problematic sacred texts are, you know, like when Mm -hmm. we think about the Bible or the Torah, like Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of stuff in there that like we do not condone today, or at least most of us do not condone today. Yes, And yet those texts endure. And so how do we do this act of like taking some and leaving others in a way that is responsible and acknowledges the pain that the source has caused And in what situations do we say, this is no longer something that I want to engage with because, you know, it has been too sullied or, or, you know, so Mm -hmm. for those who are grappling with, (laughs) with JK Rowling and Harry Potter, I highly recommend that podcast and especially the episode on her transphobia. What a perfect transition, Kate, to your next question. I I was just, we're, you know always looking to hear from our authors of what they're sort of obsessed with right now, what they're reading, what they're watching. I know on your website, you have these lists of what you're currently reading, as well as the list for prior years, which I thought was awesome. You also even have your favorite sentences from books, which just, I I loved that. That, That's (laughs) the reader and writer in you right there. But so you've mentioned a few things already, but is there anything you're sort of currently obsessed Mm. with that we need to check out? I am obsessed with Britt Marling. Uh, yes. Oh my I gosh. We did you. a whole thing on her. Yes. You did? Yes. Okay, I definitely good. have to listen to that episode. I I am totally obsessed with her. I recently watched Another Earth, which is a movie that I had had on my like to watch list for years. And I just hadn't clicked on it. And it was actually my editor who recommended it to me. And so I was like, I need to watch that. And I was so obsessed with that movie and because it does precisely what I love, which is, which is an intimate interpersonal story against this high concept thought provoking Mm -hmm. background. And then I just became totally obsessed with her. And so I'm now in the second season of the OA OA, and I love, I mean, I know that people were mixed on the OA and I get it, but I am just so into her bravery as an artist mm. and mm-hmm. i mean and also zal her her co yes. co-creator and yes. i believe that they have done a lot of the writing at least on the first season you know there's part there's aspects of the show that it's easy to make fun of but it's like she believes in it so much mm-hmm. that you believe in it and yeah. and she is brave enough to put out something that is new and weird and that could be easily made fun of 
Yeah. And she's spoken about how I, I kind of went on this tear of reading interviews with her after yes. I started getting into yeah. her work. And one yeah. of the things that I actually clipped out and saved is she talks about kind of getting criticism as an artist and how she has been able to she, she kind of is like, she's really flinty. She doesn't take criticism to heart. And she said something like, you know, I just see myself as one artist among many others kind of experimenting and like as, as part of this, this effort that is, you know, art sense making. And right. I was like, wow, what a fascinating way mm. to think of it as opposed to, you know, this is me and my work. And if you right. don't like it, it's a, it, it's, a referendum on my brain. Right. It's like she sees herself as part of a, a tribe of of not just creators but human beings. And yes. if something doesn't hit, it's like, all right, well, like you know, the waves weren't moving in that direction, or or we missed, you know, yeah. we, we missed the boat or whatever. But it's like on to the next. And I I am way more sensitive than that. I wish I was more like her, but I just thought that was such a fascinating way of putting it. Yeah, well, that comes from I don't know what you've listened to in particular or, or read, but that comes from this idea that she's really trying to embrace the feminine. And I don't mean gender, I mean, the feminine, which is in her mind, a a collective Mm -hmm. way of thinking or way of doing things. And we went down a real rabbit hole with, with what she meant by masculine and feminine and, and how sometimes you know you put a woman as the lead but they're essentially a masculine figure and so is that different from having it be a man and what's the value there and then also what's the value in the OA is a very I mean they can't do anything in the OA without each other so that's a collective there's no hero and no exactly especially in America we have such a individualistic capitalistic Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. system that really praises and glorifies the individual as yeah. like not only for you know whatever achievements but as mm-hmm. though those things were accomplished without anyone else and yes. it's just a different lens so i i totally agree and i and i think also her work is so much about embodiment i mean when you think about mm-hmm. the the movements in the OA, you know, this is this is the element I was referring to that people can easily make fun of. But you know, it's about a language of the body and and Mm -hmm. and sort of what the energy of the body can do can create. And we laugh at that with our brains. You know what I mean? Like, because we're afraid of it, we don't understand it or because we feel so disengaged. But yes, but yeah, that that movement toward embodiment is just so and visceral and sort of sensuality like I find so much in her work so she's really been an inspiring creator for me ah love that love that nice I actually and you are just very generous with your recommendations and just putting out other people's content I I I emailed with you and I said Emily Temp I found Emily Temple and the lightness through your newsletter and so we we love your recommendations keep them coming yeah and we're gonna wrap up here but I cannot let you go I I would cannot let you go without asking one last now now will seemingly be abrupt question because we ask all of our authors and we're keeping a tally I'm so glad. I thought you were, I thought we were thinking this. I was like, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to. No, 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 no. 
so it's it's astrology. Kate and I are diving deep into astrology and just in a way it's right now it's one of our ways that we are trying to let go a little bit it's an area that we just kind of let ourselves surrender and say you know what you know my daily my daily horoscope said today today is not the day to pick a fight or you know so just (laughs) just a little something to surrender but we do keep a tally and ask all of our authors and creators what is your do you know your astrological sign oh yes Oh, yes. I am oh, yes. Scorpio, ladies. Okay. Oh, this is our first Scorpio. You know, yes. I was going to ask yes. if you've had any other. Yeah, we Scorpios, we're like, we're dark. We're kind of like gritty and mysterious. But I also, I, I have like as my rising sign, a Leo. And that's like the trippy performative side. So my friend who is a fellow Scorpio and is really into astrology, she was like, like the rising Leo, we just learned that recently because I got on CoStar and you have to put in like your time of birth yeah. and yes. tells you all these yes. things. So my friend was like, that this totally makes sense now. And I was like, yeah, yes. right? Because I mean, I definitely, I think I present as like yeah. a bubbly person, which I am, but like, there's also a lot of scorp, a lot of scorp in there. I happen to be both. Uh, I am sorry. I am Aries Sun and Aries Rising, so I forget sometimes to ask people like, "What's your rising sign?" Because I just think everyone's the same, both. But obviously, that's not oh, that's true. Interesting. And I'm a I'm a double Leo, but I'm I'm my Sun sign is Leo, and my Moon, which is your your inside, truly yes. how you are on the inside. So I'm my inside and outside match. I and I yeah. truly 100 percent identify with Leo. True. But my rising sign is a Libra, which is like the scales of justice and I am a lawyer and I'm very like, like to see both sides of things. And they also Libras are very social and they like, like things to be pretty and look pretty. Like all of this is me too. So. And we've recently found out about the, the modes of the signs too. Scorpio is a fixed sign like, like Leo. So you're, you're double fixed changes. Change is hard for you. Change is hard. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, see, I'm a cardinal sign, so I actually love change. I've had to learn to settle down a little bit. Uh. To some extent, everyone is not welcoming of change, but you know, I'm like, let's just move. Let's move no, to a different city. We are like that. I mean, and I'm like, let's never move. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear what you guys use for your daily horoscope. Like, is there a, because I have to say the co-star one doesn't always hit for me on the, the daily element. I am a big fan of two for my daily is Astro Twins. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Know the Zodiac. Yeah. And are they apps? Know the Zodiac is. That's the one that I always get. You and I both get friends. Yeah. Okay. I like that one. And I get that off Instagram. Oh, yeah, okay. but she, but I have the app, and cool. on the app you can do daily, monthly, weekly, and she is someone who's so interesting. I I don't know about you, Kate, but I have followed her on Kate's recommendation, and did not know anything about the woman. I think her name is Dosavia. Yeah, I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. saying that properly, but and after George Floyd's murder, she came out and she was much more visible, and she is a black mm-hmm. woman. And I don't think there's a lot of black women as astrologers. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I will definitely look up both of those. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, thank and you guys. You're, I mean, giving out were... so much time. We appreciate I it. I know. Well, you, your questions were wonderful, and I can tell just how much research you put into your interviews, and that's really a, an honor. So thank you so much yeah. for reaching out. I appreciate that. You call it, we do a lot of research, but this is what we love. I mean, we love yeah. your book. We love yeah. everything that you're presenting, and and it really is an honor to do it and to be able to, to talk more about it with you. So Aww. thank you. Well, thank you guys so much. I will. Book three. It's got to be coming <laughs> soon-ish. <laughs> I think it depends which one it is. I mean, given this this mix-up, you know, oh. I don't know. I don't know which is book three, which is book four now. So that's I, exciting. I know. I in a previous incarnation, I would I would not be okay with this at all. And I'm right. I'm trying to lean into the not knowing. But yes. yeah, it does. It feels like it's been a while since the Immortals came out, but it's only been two and a half years and yeah there was about right. four between my first and second book so i think i i think i might be like a once every five years kind okay. of writer yeah. but who knows truly not me well i say i can't wait which is still still true but i will wait <laughs> <laughs> well thank I you be... i appreciate it i mean it's a it's a wonderful thing to have people who are interested in your your work and your next project Absolutely. And and when that day comes in two, three years, whatever it is, we hope you'll come back and talk oh, to us again. Oh, yes. Absolutely. It'll be great to reconnect. All right. Good. All right. Well, take care, both of you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed the show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes. Tell them to and then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.